Hey, it's Daryl Etherington, your host here on Found. And I'm also here with my co-host and the arbiter of my destiny. Whoa, that's a lot of responsibility. My name is Jordan Crook, and right. I'll tell you his destiny at the end of the episode. Okay, thanks. Good. I can't wait to hear. But this week on Found, the weekly podcast where we talk to a different founder every week that you love because it's the best podcast, not only on TechCrunch, but also on the internet. Just in existence. Yeah, even the podcasts that are not on the internet, this is the best one. Mixtapes. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So... This week, we have a great show for you. We're talking to Kiki Friedman, who is the CEO and co-founder of Hey Jane, which is a digital clinic for women's most underserved healthcare problems. And the first underserved healthcare problem that they're launching to address or have launched to address is abortion. So they provide telemedicine support for abortion and also delivery of the abortion pill. Jordan, what did you think about today's episode? Great question, Daryl. Um, I thought it was a rock solid episode, mostly because of Kiki. Kiki is awesome. Kiki has the power to solve any problem, I think. That's my take. She's definitely a force. She's a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, this is like one of those topics that needs to be approached with some sensitivity and a lot of thoughtfulness and also has so many barriers in the way. And I thought Kiki was really honest in the way that she talked about how those challenges can be somewhat demoralizing, but also kind of showed, I think, what it takes to be an entrepreneur, whether it's in a challenging field or a non-challenging field. I think they're all pretty challenging. But to like look at something like that and say like, okay, well, then I got to fix it. Like if it's difficult, then it doesn't mean anything but that I have to fix it. And that was a nice take. And I also think we had an interesting conversation just about the general landscape of kind of what's wrong with everything, which can sound like a downer, but I actually think it's pretty cathartic. No, I think this was an energizing conversation and I think you listeners will also believe that. So enjoy. Hey, Kiki, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? Great. All right. So obviously you have a startup. That's why you're here. That's what the show is all about. Yep. Do you want to tell us about Hey Jane? Sure. Hey Jane is a digital clinic for women's most underserved health problems. We are starting with medication abortion care, one of the most, if not the most underserved health need today. Wow. Okay. Yes. Very underserved and also definitely in the news lately, right? Because of the Texas legislation. Sure is. And the subsequent, I think the decision, when we're recording this, so we release these later dear listener. So <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen in the next little while. But I think as we're recording this, a federal judge just struck down or invalidated the Texas law. So I don't know what next, maybe you can actually help us, Kiki, with next yeah, steps. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So as of this morning, a federal judge did put a temporary block on SB8. So we're very happy to see that. Yeah. However, it's being appealed now to the Fifth Circuit, which tends to be a bit more conservative. And so um, the fight's not over. We do think that it may go back into effect. Right, right. And there's additional steps beyond that. Far from yep. over. But the point just generally being, that wasn't, was that in the air when you founded Hey Jane? Like we weren't, it's been what, a couple of years, two years since you founded the company? Yeah, I started back in 2019 and it is 
kind of unbelievable how much has changed in both telemedicine and abortion rights since then. Right. When we first started, the idea of telemedicine abortion was quite new. There were some fairly material regulatory blockers that had prevented it from being tried at sort of a, a startup scale in the past. I could talk a little bit more about how we approached that. But of course, we've seen telemedicine regulation advance dramatically yeah. over the last, you know, since the pandemic began. And there were some really favorable moves in telemedicine abortion, particularly. Right. 2021 has unfortunately been especially bad for abortion restrictions. There have been about 90 new state-level restrictions rolled out just this year. Of course, Roe is on the line with the upcoming SCOTUS case, likely to be heard in December. So the time for alternative forms of access, I think, really is now. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned a lot of things that have changed. So what was the state when you started? And what was kind of your insight about, this is the right time for this company, and I want to go build this now? Yeah, there were sort of two factors that came together that really made me motivated to work on this. One, One was a conversation I was having with some of my friends from undergrad. We'd gone to school in St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri is one of five states that now has a single abortion clinic left in the entire state. It was close to school. We would drive by it often. Of course, had many friends go there for treatment. Always covered in protesters yelling the most vitriolic things that you could imagine, knowing that many of those patients had traveled from hundreds of miles away just to get there. And in doing so, we're spending, you know, hundreds of dollars in avoidable expenses for things like missed work, childcare, travel, overnight stays. Nevertheless, very grateful that that clinic existed. That summer was very close to getting shut down. The state was going to refuse to renew its license and Missouri would become the first state since Roe v. Wade to have no abortion access at all. Mm. This was like a completely dystopian possibility that that might be the case in the U.S. in 2019. And simultaneously, there were a lot of really great companies popping up, primarily on the men's sexual wellness side, using a digital clinic model to address these historically stigmatized needs. And so I just started thinking, hey, is that a way that we could create more access to safe, affordable, discreet abortion care? Right. Yeah. I mean, this was not great that that was happening, horrible that that was happening, but great that you came up with that and saw that. Because we, I think we've had a lot of those companies on, Jordan. Yes, I love those interviews. Yeah. Oh, did you? Okay, good. (laughs) That's nice to hear. Yeah. (laughs) We don't get that very often. No, just kidding, Kiki. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like you said, like a lot of this stuff hadn't happened yet that was going to make it really scalable. So, I mean, you obviously saw that it's imperative that this has to happen, but a lot of the stuff was external to you, right? It's not something that you had control over in terms of what would allow it to grow the way that you needed to grow when it's like a tech company. So it was a risk, obviously, but what you were just betting, like things were going to change and things were going to go that way? Or what, what was the story there? Not quite. So not to go into too many of the boring details, but there were regulations at the federal level that had sort of commonly been interpreted as prohibiting mailing of the abortion pill. I took a very deep look into some of that language, probably leveraging some of my experience at Uber with um, Mm. trying to find creative approaches to regulatory issues. And it became somewhat clear to me that I think the regulation was not as concrete in the way people had interpreted it historically as uh, it had generally been viewed. So even prior to COVID and prior to some of the regulatory shifts, we had developed a model that we thought and still feel confident as being completely compliant with the regulations that would allow us to operate. The way that we would have needed to operate was a bit 
bit more convoluted, a bit more complex than mm-hmm. uh, some of you know what's been unlocked by some of the changes since then. But we were ready to go prior to, to COVID. Oh, that's very cool. So you basically, you saw an opportunity there that other people have missed because of just assumptions, right? And it's very, it's funny that you bring up Uber, right? Because Uber did a lot of the same things in a lot of the markets that it expanded to, especially early on, was just say like, oh no, like even like the central thesis, which was, this is a technology platform being utilized by individuals on two sides of a double-sided marketplace. We're just serving both customers, but we're a technology company that sits in the middle, right? Like that's essentially what allowed them to go and go so fast and grow so big so quickly. So obviously that was formative to you, but like you spent what, like four years at Uber, foreign change or something like that? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So you, you would say like that actually really helped you do this or were you always kind of looking, was that just in your nature to begin with to be like, all right, where's the opportunity? How do we find out what goes on that can become something sort of like big later on? Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly was in my nature. I think it's part of what attracted me to Uber. Mm. And I think being at the company, though, during those years of hyper growth and having the opportunity to launch new markets and take on some of these more you know meaty projects did really provide some of those concrete skills and analysis and frankly, just confidence that if you are reading something differently than people have in the past, it may not mean that you're wrong. Right. And I think that that's been really helpful. Yeah, that's the difficult part because I don't know if Jordan's going to back me up here, but like, I don't think we have that skill. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think us personally, we have this, the thing where we read it and we go like, okay, that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. we move on and then we write that down for other people to read <laughs> yeah we whine about it but that's about yeah, it yeah. <laughs> I mean I think one of the things that was really important in getting to some level of confidence in the hygiene interpretation was trying to understand well if we're right and most people are wrong like why is that it's right. generally improbable that we're that we're right when all these smart people have read it differently before and I think there it was we just traced it to this level of momentum before it used to be the case that you had to physically swallow the pill in a doctor's office. Mm. That was very clear in its interpretation. And then it just changed to needing to be dispensed in a doctor's office. And I think because of the way it had been done before, people thought that meant physically hand it to the patient within the four walls of a clinic. We looked into, is that really what dispense means? Spent way more hours researching the definition of dispense than I ever had (laughs) planned to. Um, But that's how we arrived at our, our different conclusion. Nice. Okay. Do you ever find yourself just getting really, because like you're going in and changing access, right? And democratizing this thing that's pretty broken. But like beyond that level, it's already super broken because if men got pregnant or if there was some sort of, if there's any research whatsoever into men's birth control, like it would be a completely different landscape, right? Yeah. So like, do you ever find yourself just like, yeah, I'm making progress, but like you guys broke this so bad before I was ever even born. Like, you know what I mean? Like I just, every time we talk about this subject, that's all I can think about is like, you could get one at a gas station if dudes got pregnant. No problem. Yeah. Right. Like 50 cents. No problem. No barriers. No one's messing with anybody, but like, you know, it's women. So, so we got to make it hard and complicated. Totally. I mean, Certainly at the beginning of my time working at Hey Jane, I was just consistently in a state of absolute outrage. And I would think that I'd become somewhat desensitized to it and then learn something new that was even more preposterous about the way this is regulated or done today. I think to protect my own mental health and because of some level of exposure now, very little surprises me, but it does still 
light that fire to keep working to change it. Right. At least you're able to convert it to something productive. Because you're talking about early on, you were like constantly like, oh, I can't believe it works this way. But now we were talking about at the start, it must be extra infuriating to then watch things just go backwards at the level of legislature and regulation. It's maddening for those of us who are not involved in the thing directly. So for you, it must be like, that's where I would see there being difficulty with motivation to continue. But then on the other side, it becomes much more imperative. So I suppose you well, you side with that. right? And not even like more imperative. Well, I mean, it is obviously more imperative, but you, maybe I mean, I, and we're just like guessing at how you feel right now back and forth. But like mm-hmm. you also see the reaction to those kinds of decisions. Right. And feel like, OK, product market fit exists right there, right in front of my eyes. People are pissed. And so it's like discouraging on the one hand because the government's dumb, dummy. But then on the other hand, you're like, ah, people get it. And there's momentum here, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think to try to find some silver lining in everything that's been happening, I do think it's really activated a new generation of people to be interested in this topic. Most of us, you know, grew up in a post-Roe world where we could sort of take access for granted. And it has been slowly eroded and chipped away over the last few decades, but in this slow way that's more difficult to notice. With these extremist laws coming into place and some of these really monumental court cases, I do think it's sort of woken people up to the fact that this is something we have to actively push to maintain. And I will say it is also great just to see the general interest in the work we're doing beyond just the space as a whole. The comments that we get and just like the level of interest in engaging the brand and supporting our patients is also like very motivating and beautiful. Yeah. When you were talking about the Missouri Clinic, it struck me like, oh, so like there was always a war being waged, but it was much more subtle previously and perhaps harder to root out and kind of opposed because it was like, well, let's just choke this to death by withholding funding or whatever else. And then we'll softly ban it without actually having to bring it up as a direct topic of discussion or contention. Right. And then it's more insidious because then eventually you end up in a place where like, well, it's always been this way. I mean, I don't know. There's no abortion clinics nearby. So it's in effect barred to me. Right. And it's just the way it is, which would be worse. So like, I guess in that way, it's kind of better, like you say, but does the polarization scare you or does the polarization feel like it's an opportunity for hope and for the potential for change? It does scare me. I do try to make a conscious effort to maintain empathy for people who have a differing set of beliefs on this and try to understand that from their perspective, what they're fighting for, they view as being very valid. But there is a history of anti-abortion violence in this country that it would be foolish not to be a little bit afraid of. Yes. So it's something that we do take seriously in how we manage our team and, of course, our patients' data and their experience as well. Yeah, it's an extra level of responsibility. I mean, you're, when you're in the healthcare industry, you always have that responsibility, right? But because now, and like you mentioned, those other brands that we've spoken to, part of the appeal of like this new telehealth approach is this sense of community and identity. You identify with the brand in a much more personal and direct way. So you want to achieve that, but you also are cognizant that we should all come together, but we also just can't put people at risk. We can't really put a target on our back at a time when, unfortunately, it looks like a lot of people are willing to take a shot at that target, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a balance to be struck there. We really do like to give patients the opportunity to elevate their stories with visibility to the extent that they're comfortable. We have reviews posted on our site with varying levels of anonymity. 
I do think that's important towards normalization. We would mm-hmm. never encourage anyone to do anything that they're not comfortable with. But this is something that, you know, one in four women will have an abortion in their lives. I think that that is ignored and poorly understood because people are so silent about it and often deal with it in isolation. Two thirds mm-hmm. of patients wouldn't talk to their closest friends or family members about their experience. And so I think wow. moving away from that to show this is a huge group of people and their voices deserve to to be heard. Yeah. And the feedback you see from your customers, which like you have on your website is it seems like people feel heard and also feel the one I just popped up. It says you guys make me feel safe. Right. Which is like exactly what you want to achieve. It's like not only are you able to talk about it or to share your story or share your experience, but you're also able to feel safe in your pursuit of care. Right. You can be visible and part of a group, but you're also not the Missouri thing, again, it just keeps, it drives me nuts. It's like you're forcing people down a funnel into like, okay, then we make it very easy to target you in a very real and scary way, right? And this helps eschew all of that while getting the benefits of visibility and community, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the disaggregation of a physical location for this type of care is huge for the patients and the providers as well. They're subject to probably the most harassment and no longer can they be yelled at walking into a clinic. So I think that that's huge. In addition to the other benefits, just, you know, convenient cost. I wonder about something that keeps popping into my head as we're talking to you is Bumble, oddly enough. Yep. Because, you know, Whitney obviously founded Bumble on the back of a sexual harassment and discrimination lawsuit and created it kind of with the intention of changing dating with that in mind. And then now is very active, right, in terms of what she does with policy and how she interacts with the government. I think they've signed in some legislation that she was a part of and all of this stuff. And so I wonder when you think about down the road as you scale, is that something that you think about as well? And do you have kind of a model in mind in terms of how you might be able to go and speak with legislators and say, let's talk about some of this stuff in a way that actually makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's a conversation that we do want to take an increasing role in as we grow. We are realistic about our size right now and our resourcing being quite early. So our focus for now is data collection. We're partnering with UCSF on a study that they're doing to validate, you know, safety effectiveness preferences around this model. And we get some really great data. That is a really critical part of informing some of these policy conversations to the extent that policymakers care about the science related to it, which we know is not always the case. But that's sort of the role that we're focusing on for now. Yeah, at least you can provide it to them and then they have to ignore it. And it's a matter of public record that they're doing it, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and I think the other piece that you're doing is like, like Daryl said, by creating a safe way to have community and maybe like be more visible. It's just like anything else. Like I'm gay, right? And like, I think that there were a lot of homophobic people in my community as I was growing up that changed their tune when I came out. I think once you like know and love, I think we all have that, right? Like whatever's other to you, eventually you know and love that other. And then you're like, oh, I was totally wrong about all of this, right? Like it makes sense because I can be empathetic towards it now. And so I think that what you're talking about with people feeling afraid to kind of share or talk about their experiences, doing that also changes the game a lot, right? For me, when you just look at the simple math of like our country and the population and how it's split (laughs) down the middle gender wise, it's hard for it to make sense that this hasn't have just kind of majority rule behind it. And I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that there are women and there are men, too, who haven't, they don't know that someone they love has been through this experience and why. And if they did, it would change things, you know? 
So I, yeah, couldn't agree more. Putting a human face on it and being able to understand the nuance of the circumstances for people who make assumptions about abortion patients is huge. About half of you know people who end up needing an abortion were on some form of contraceptive when they got pregnant. About half are moms. There are just these incredibly inaccurate stereotypes around it that when you could personalize it, put a face on it with someone that you know and understand, it could make a big difference in empathy. So yeah. we were talking about the safety of the community. How do you think about things like, you know, marketing? And you were talking about data collection. In that instance, you were talking about data collection for the purpose of a study, which I think is different than, you know, essentially personally uh, identifiable information that would be used in marketing or outreach. And that's also the kind of thing where you definitely don't want, <laughs> you know, you don't want that list to get out into the wrong hands, obviously. And so how do you think about, I'm sure you have to elevate your your thinking on that from your average D to C startup when it comes to marketing and collecting data on your users, et cetera. Totally. Yeah. So we're very mindful of data security and the way that we've structured the product. Everything is HIPAA compliant, encrypted, all of this in the standard ways that any healthcare company would need to be. But we also think really carefully about it in the ways that we design other elements of the product that may be less obvious, the way that we communicate with patients after their treatment or during it. Reaching out to them via email or text message may create more exposure than they want. And so we use, you know, like a dedicated app for that. There are just unexpected ways that, you know, we've really dug into to make sure that we can maintain that super private experience for those who want to keep it to themselves. Uh, Kiki, I had a question kind of related to, I mean, related to this, related to sort of sensitivity and privacy, right? One thing that you mentioned in your interview with Christine for the, I don't know if you mentioned this or if it was in the press materials, but I noticed that one of your investors wished to remain publicly anonymous. So is that, it's just to me seems like a, an interesting twist on that where it's like, okay, like money will come in, but sometimes it has to remain sort of like undercover because of the sensitivities around the issue. So what was it like the fundraising process for you? And I mean, if you're willing to share more about that particular case, like it's highly unusual to see that you just don't see that right in the kind of the businesses that we normally cover. So I guess generally what's that like and what's it like dealing with sensitivities around that on the investment side? Yeah, fundraising was a very interesting process. I think always with a startup, it's really important to find that product investor fit, making sure that they're mission aligned, vision aligned, et cetera. And in this case, I think that's more true than, than yeah. usual. What we found is that a lot of the investors really saw the product market fit. They're like, duh, like, why is no one doing this? Clearly, there is a need. Our economics as a business are also very good, and we've seen great traction. So if it were in another topic, I think it would be like a no-brainer. But it is the case that folks have LP conflict. If they have right. organizations that have invested in them, some have explicit clauses against investing in abortion. Some are just nervous about the way it may be perceived by LPs. And so uh, we did very much have to navigate that sensitivity and lean into folks who had the autonomy to take on the topic, either because they were an angel or a syndicate or didn't have the risk of LP conflict that way. Right. How do you, beyond the logistics of that, right? Like just, okay, this is the reality and this is what we have to do and kind of the way we have to navigate something like this, like as a person, how does that make you feel? Because I'm sure that that's like pretty difficult to know that that kind of sensitivity can create such hurdles. 
Yeah. At the beginning, definitely it was surprising and and frustrating. Mm. It continues to be frustrating only to the extent that it adds more time um, to fundraising when I'd, of course, rather be spending (laughs) that time operating the business and doing other things. But we knew it going into this space, right? Like it's controversial. And the fact that we have been able to get such amazing investors on board who really wholeheartedly support us is something that I am grateful for, even though I know that it shouldn't be that way. It is. And so we just have to work within the system that exists there. Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's surprising to me, honestly. It was, it's not something that I had thought about previously that they would have causes about like not invest, but like it does make sense in a sad sort of way once you bring it up. I mean, honestly, the whole this is another thing where I feel like the Canadian American difference pretty considerably, where I'm just like, wow, like there's a lot of things that I take for granted here that are that I just assume are the same for my American colleagues and friends and that are most definitely not right (laughs) because we've had our own trouble lately and like some of the late the conservative political movement has sort of started to touch on regression in this area but we mostly consider it a settled matter right to hear that it's probably the same way that you heard when you initially went out and, and started hearing it but to me it's it's a really shocking thing to hear i imagine it would be really difficult to just kind of go like oh yeah right like this too, like on top of everything else, because it's already so hard. It's so hard to go and raise money yeah. and then have that be in there too, right? Yes, it, it like for sure. Um, I will say, and maybe you could tell this from some of my other answers, like coming up against those boundaries is often more motivating because I'm like, this is yeah. so ridiculous and we just need to push it until it changes. I've talked to some folks who were involved in fundraising conversations for birth control startups, you know, not so long ago. And that was considered controversial. Wow. Now the model has been proven. It's very mainstream. And, you know, we just want to push forward on our own path towards that end. Oh, great. I mean, I think I'm glad you're doing it. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad someone's out there normalizing it so that it, things can can hopefully change. But yeah, it was this is like telling tales out of school a little bit. But there was like some <laughs> I know there was like a bunch of editors involved in this piece. And I was like, what? Honestly, this is way behind the scenes. And I don't, I'm not going to call it any specific colleagues, but like it came up and I was like, Oh yeah, this looks like a great one. Like, go for it. Because people pitch and I'm in the newsroom and I'm like, good idea, good idea, whatever. And I didn't really think about it again. And then it came back and then it was like, okay, let's protect. I think it was good because it was like the sentiment was, let's make sure everyone involved and our writer involved and our team are like, feel safe and protected and in doing this thing that we all want to do. But yeah, it was definitely a learning moment for me of like, oh, right. Like, this is still something that we need to tread somewhat carefully around, unfortunately, because because of the way that it's dealt with. Right? Yeah. yeah. How do you manage your team, right? Like on a personal level, I'm sure that like, I mean, you obviously are the kind of person that says, fuck this, I'm going to change it whenever <laughs> yeah, something pops, pops up in your way, right? But like, not all people are like that. And yeah, like I'm us. sure that <laughs> your employees, <laughs> I'm sure your employees like deal with, you know, whatever the sensitivity to the fact that the political landscape is what it is. Maybe they have family members or friends or whatever. And, you know, I'm curious how you, especially in COVID where there's not like, uh, I'm assuming there's not like a safe office, right. To come into and be like, okay, well, we're all in this together. Like let's lock arms and sing Kumbaya and like, we'll all feel better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Me and Daryl do it like every Monday morning. So it's funny you brought that up. That's how we start our week. (laughs) It is something we 
try to be very mindful about. I think in many ways we had that normal startup culture and that we move fast. We're very into challenging one another's ideas, like really getting to the core of truth and what we want to build. But I do, and actually I feel that I would do this if I were working on any topic, but I think it is especially important here. We do try to create a lot of space for mental health and just like self-care, as cliche as that word has become. So we incorporate I hope this doesn't sound very cheesy, but we incorporate like a gratitude practice into our daily standups, which I think is really nice in both being able to reflect and also just getting some insight into what other people's lives are like at the moment, since we don't have that in-person connection. We find that very useful. You know, we work really, really hard, but if someone needs to step back, there's definitely a culture that's supportive of doing that and also just generally being very collaborative and and supportive of one another. Yeah, I don't think that sounds cheesy at all. Yeah, me neither. I think that Daryl and I should come to your gratitude practice. Yeah, I think so too. Oh my gosh. Can we attend as outsiders? Because I don't express any gratitude. I I express only the opposite. (laughs) No. (laughs) Daryl expresses with his credit card and then he's disappointed. Those are his two expressions. (laughs) But I mean, have you ever felt like you needed to take time or space or like, how do you express your own vulnerability as a leader? This is something we talk about, I feel like on the podcast a lot, mostly because Daryl and I are trying to figure it out. (laughs) But I'm curious how you, you know, kind of share when you're down or low or afraid or if you do. Yeah, I would say like, especially with my co-founders, they're marvelous people. And I do feel really comfortable being emotionally open with them. There have, of course, as you can imagine, been some really low moments. I remember one call where I did just call them sobbing and was just like, I need to vent for a second. And they're amazing. One of, uh, so one is our head of marketing who I've known forever from where we grew up. And the other is just like this incredible family medicine doctor with a background in abortion care. Both of them really just have their own really effective ways of being supportive and energizing. And I am very grateful for that. That's good. Yes. Co-founders you can lean on another. And we've talked to solo founders before too. And it comes up as like, it's really difficult in that way where you're like, who do I look around to? Right. And often they're like, well, you know, maybe I can check in with an investor or something, but ultimately it's on me. But if you have co-founders that you get along with that offer you something that you can't necessarily provide yourself, I think that you're really lucky. But does it ever go the other way though? Have you ever had, and how do you handle conflict when you have, especially with like a three person team, right? It's an additional level of complexity. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I would also say I really love about our team is there is just like an incredibly low amount of ego. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's related to it being, you know, mission driven or the people that we've selected for, but it's actually been a really interesting experience because often when I have corrective feedback to give to folks and I ask how they think things are going to open the conversation, they will like preempt it with everything I was going to say and more. And so <laughs> it's happened several times recently. It's um, it's incredibly interesting. I think people are very receptive to it. It does come from, I think, having that underlying foundation of real like trust and love for one another. I was uh, really interested in listening to the Row interview you guys did, and they talked about how they would say, I love you to each other. And I think that's something that we've very much related to. And I think it's, it's important to facilitate those harder I tell Daryl I love him all the time. <laughs> He's yet to say it back, but I feel like... I don't believe that's true. I, like, I think I've said like it back. a decade of t- telling him how much I love him, but I mean, maybe we'll get there. I don't know. I love you, Jordan. I've said that before. Oh, you do say it. I just wanted to hear it right now. I just needed to. <laughs> I teased it out. <laughs> You're fishing. It's I fine. should have been honest and fish vulnerable. For anytime I'm you want, Jordan. You can fish for <laughs> that. <I will. laughs> 
viewers can't or the listeners can't see that but i did a little fishing motion folks in i think case you were... i think your sound effect was actually pretty uh <laughs> illustrative <of that. laughs> crushing it another killer episode let's go yeah i do want to ask kiki i realized or i noticed clicking around and, and looking at the website like you guys are really good about the discover section and like the supplemental material and you have like a lot of really awesome articles in there like with really good supportive content resources so like was that something also you wanted to build in from the start or how did you think about that when you were coming up with the concept for the company yeah so when we first started thinking about like what the first product would be for hey jane we did a bunch of market research and basically found number one like critical area to address is getting pills in people's hands. That's their their biggest problem. And so we wanted to solve that first. But I do think, you know, as we've learned more about the experience and, and how we address it, there really is this wide open space for emotional and social support to supplement the physical. Because of the isolating experience that it can often be today, the opportunity for online community to connect with peers going through the same experience at the same time is really valuable. And similarly, being able to provide emotional support, which we do through one-on-one sort of um, counseling and online content, again, just adds uh, so much to the comprehensiveness and robustness of the type of care we can provide. So that really is where we're moving and creating this sort of complete care integrated platform that addresses these different pillars. And then, you know, hopefully with the goal of expanding that into other, the many other very underserved women's health products out there now, women and people with um, with uteruses generally, very much acknowledging of the TGE community within our, our site and, and strategy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask about that because I think you mentioned it right off the top and when you were you're talking about kind of uh, hey Jane in general, like you mentioned, this is your first area of focus, but it sounds like you want to go beyond that. This is just the one that was in most urgent need of attention. Is that kind of how you you decided what to start, where to start? Yeah, I mean, truthfully, it was really motivated by this furor I felt by seeing mm. um, what was happening in the news and just knowing how incredibly neglected this very common. Uh, piece of healthcare is. But I think we've just learned a lot through the process of how how not unique that is within healthcare today. So much of women's health has been neglected. Things like postpartum depression, miscarriage management, emotional health around that experience, incredibly common and no one really talks about it. So I think there's a lot of room to grow. Yeah. I think that's interesting too, because it's like, it's a theme too. And we've talked to obviously the other telehealth providers about kind of like, oh, they realized how few things are being addressed in this area in the right way. And the what you just talked about brought to mind more though, like Alula and how cancer care, the paradigm was like, okay, you have cancer, like here's your chemotherapy and here's a list of like maybe some other things you should do. See you later. I'm an oncologist. That's all I do. <laughs> and then not all I do. They obviously do great things, but like <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to be addressed that is just forgotten or ignored. And I think like you brought up things, miscarriage, like aftercare, like those things I think are not even, it's another area where the traditional treatment is sort of like the no treat. It's not treatment. It's don't talk about that. That's not for public discussion or public conversation. You yep. should worry about that in private and deal with it how you have to, but then forget about it and move on, which is not care at all. Right. Yeah. The opposite of care. So I guess then the question is like, what are you most angry about next? <laughs> <laughs> Well, one stat I, I heard um, or that, you know, we've, I think that motivated the whole team is the average number of doctor's visits that a new parent had after giving birth with all of the intense effects that that has on, on your body, all of the, the healing that needs to occur is one. 
There's one and it's six weeks after the birth. And so we've been working on exploring various protocols for how we may be able to address that neglect so that, you know, after a birth, the focus is also on the parent um, and their healing, not just on, on the new child. Yeah, that is that is also it's just wild to hear because then when you think about it, it's like, yes, of course, it's always depicted. It's like, oh, look, you're the baby. All right, we'll send you home. Like, what, next day, later that day? I don't know what the... It's very, very quickly though, right? As quickly like as they 24 get. 24 hours or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah like. And then that's it for it's six ridiculous. weeks. And then you come in yeah, and Yeah, and then go, work is like, hey, <laughs> yeah, let's hang out. Don't you want to come back? I'm sure you're feeling bored at home having gotten no sleep whatsoever <laughs> and being covered in vomit. Like, get back to the office. Yeah. Yes. I can't wait. I just can't wait. <laughs> Someone's going to get an email. <laughs> At the very least. Just an email. <laughs> well, okay. So my partner gets 52 weeks, which is awesome. That's yeah. amazing. Is this and, in the U.S.? Well, yeah. she's a doctor. Well, she works for, uh, she was a doctor and she works for Big Pharma. So they're like, you know, that's they have f- you money. And they also have like huge retention issues, right? Because right? it's so competitive in pharma. But that'll be an interesting situation i'm like you're gonna have to have the baby because otherwise we're both gonna be back at work in six weeks yeah yeah tech crunch would be like no nah, uh, crunch would be like we've got a it. really no. important <laughs> sessions event <laughs> uh, i don't so even know sad. what tech crunch would no, be no like, i know i don't know i don't yeah. know either I, I mean yeah of course i never have to worry about it but like yeah i'll combine a sabbatical with my mat leave and then quit probably <laughs> It is so fundamentally bizarre that these have to be considerations and something that is, again, so common. I know. It's just, uh, it's, this is another, it's another Canadian. I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> you can't help well, yourself, I lived in can you? Sweden. You're just like, Canada, Canada, Canada. <laughs> you lived in Sweden, Kiki? Oh, I was going to say, I lived in Sweden for a short period of time. And there being able to see, you know, the parental leave policies and the impact on just seeing like, you know, more dads on the street with strollers, I thought was absolutely incredible. Yeah, the more we could do to drive Pat leave up as well, I think it's a huge component of it. I think that's critically important. Yeah. I mean, like the fact that any marriage survives the first hundred days of a new baby is wild to me. But then on top of it, throw in like, oh, yeah, like woman, you have to feed and man, go back to work immediately. Don't bond. Like all of these things is just amazing. I actually saw something recently about, I think it was this morning. It was comparing like the world's wealthy nations and how they handle daycare, like government funded daycare. And I think the average in the US is like $500. And it like the next one up is like 2000 or something like it automatically starts so much just more. four times as much for the next one nearest yeah yeah but it's like it reminds me of veep right like kids don't vote there's no <laughs> votes in space yeah. you know like we're not talking about space we're not talking about kids they don't vote like but it's ridiculous yeah it's absolutely ridiculous i mean we're way off topic at this point, <laughs> yeah but. but we have unearthed so many areas of opportunity for people to go in and make some changes to stuff. We just need the, the motivation has to be there. The funding has to be there. I think another thing that we should just take away from this and that we should just leave our audience with is like, come on, LPs, <laughs> get with it. Don't, impo- yeah. don't impose any weird conditions on your funding, especially like, I honestly hope this is true, but I I think that's going to improve as the demographics change as they age out. But yeah, for me, I I would want that to change most of all. And Kiki, you don't have to say anything about it. They're your investors. Everybody's investors are great, but yeah, let's change that paradigm. Get it together. Yeah. yeah. 
for for real. Like it's a joke. It really is. I mean, it's not a joke, but like it's so sad that it is a joke. I also think as a closing thought, not for our audience necessarily, but just in general, like we just need we need term limits, don't we? Yes. Yeah. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Kiki. I saw <laughs> <laughs> But we are out of time, but like it's it's been fantastic talking to you. Really enjoyed it. I think what you're doing with Hey Jane is amazing. And I can't wait to see you go and tackle other things. Cause I think if anybody can do it, you can do it. You got the drive, the energy. You're not like us. You won't just <laughs> accept things as they are. Roll over. <laughs> Thank you guys. This was amazing. And if I could make a shameless plug, we are doing a lot of hiring. So check nice. it out at HeyJane.com. Yes. Do you need a professional complainer? I could be your chief complaint <laughs> officer. CCO. That's coming next quarter. We have the budget there. Okay. She's bad news officer. I'll, yeah. There you go. I'll look for your call. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Thank you. All right, Jordan, that was our chat with Kiki Friedman from Hey Jane. We started off in some, you know, complex territory. We started off talking about SB8. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I don't think it's complex. I think SB8 is a garbage law. It's yes, very straightforward, by actually. But... Bad lawmakers who have no good ideas. But I think that we, it was interesting to start there because the company obviously started before this, but the company started to address some of the same systematic problems that led to the creation of those laws, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like you start with this broken thing as a founder and you say like, okay, well, I'm going to try to fix it or change it. You know, a lot of founders say, oh, we were trying to fix the plane while it was in the air. And then the engine fell off <laughs> in this case. So I thought it was interesting how Kiki talked about not only that that could be really difficult on the one hand, but that it can act as kind of an activation for people, kind of validate what she's working on. And she can take that piece and make, yeah, get some fuel. Yeah. Overall, the, the, um, the like trajectory of the company was super interesting just because she started it and she had these ideas about this is how we can make this work. And then the landscape just changed dramatically under her feet in a couple of ways. Like in one way that Texas tried to or is trying to make abortions illegal. On the, on the other hand, you have COVID came up out of nowhere. Again, no one could predict. And then that just like made telemedicine a thing to do, like something that people really wanted. Right. So you have these very different forces at work and very strong forces in either direction that just come in and potentially could totally mess with everything you're trying to do. But it seems like Kiki and Hey Jane handled it all in stride. Right? Yeah. I mean, if I'm the arbiter of your destiny, that probably qualifies me to make a prediction about Kiki's destiny, although it's not like set in stone. But my prediction would be that she tackles this and actually has a pretty lasting impact on our society based on her attitude and her energy and the way she thinks about things. So I give two thumbs up and the green light as a destiny arbiter to Kiki. Mm. And then for you, Daryl, what I see is that you'll forever be my best friend. Okay. That's true. And eventually you will build by hand a log cabin for me in Canada. Yes. Where I can visit you and then use as like an Airbnb rental that we would split the revenue on like when I'm not there. And yeah, I think that's a pretty clear picture. Okay. Yeah. I'll get on that. I'll get started right now. 
And then yeah, we'll your destiny. Uh, fully insert some chainsaw noises and stuff to end this episode. <laughs> I'd be when I'm building the cabin for us to live in in safe Canada with our good laws. <laughs> To be clear, I did never said I wanted to live with you. I <laughs> was saying that you would build me a log cabin oh, right. that That's I right. could it's live in. It's not occupied most of the time. It's just an Airbnb. And when it's not occupied, it's an Airbnb, and I would be happy to split the revenue with you since you built it. But it's All really right. so you can have your best friend close sometimes. Okay. Just to be crystal clear. That's a decent destiny. I'll take it. Okay. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Ethington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited by Kel Keller, and Maggie Stamets is our associate producer. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Our guest this week was Kiki Friedman, co-founder and CEO at Hey Jane. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com. Or you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.